means to either conform, comply, or act in accordance with. To literally imitate or to copy. So then why do we think when Jesus said, follow me, he meant raise a hand, sign a card, or show up at church once a week? When Jesus said, follow me, he wanted people who imitated him, who conformed to him, who looked like him. He wanted us to drop everything, radically change our lives, and yield to the unknown. He wanted us to follow, to go where he goes, to do what he does, because he's bringing his kingdom, and the only thing he asks is, will we follow? a new series called Following Jesus. We started it last week. Uh, so if you missed that series, that first sermon, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to it because it's sort of a foundational understanding of where we're going uh, with this sermon series. So the series is titled Following Jesus. And so we're building a biblical definition of what it looks like, practically speaking, to be a Christian. Essentially, we're trying to answer the question according to Jesus. That's a key thing. Answering the question according to Jesus, what Jesus says a Christian is. What is a Christian? And so last week, we began by establishing the beginning of our definition. And that definition is a Christian is someone who is following Jesus. Now, in some ways, we could say that that's a complete definition. Anyone who is following Jesus is a Christian. However, there's some key things that Jesus teaches about what a follower looks like, what our posture should be, and what Jesus expects from his followers. Essentially, a Christian is someone who is following Jesus, but what does following Jesus actually look like? Interestingly, some of us, and some of us in the church even, uh, might notice or may not notice that Jesus' teachings don't actually line up with how we sometimes articulate things in the church today. So this topic is actually really, really important specifically for the North American church. Some of the things that we've created, the dogma that I talked about last week, the definitions of salvation and how we go about being saved and following Jesus, some of those things are dogmatic in nature, i.e. crap the church made up, and some of those things are actually what the Bible says, and we have this mixed matched mess of all of these different things. But essentially, often what we're doing is, is we've made faith more about individualism and personal professions than about truly following the ways of Jesus. Jesus presented to his disciples a dream. A dream that they would have somewhat understood. It was a dream that they actually had chosen to follow when Jesus called them. I hope that we all have dreams. 
Because people with dreams can fly. Our dreams, our aspirations, I don't mean like the nappy time dreams. I mean aspirations, things that we're dreaming about that could actually happen. They give us direction and they give us hope. They're a key to living this one life that we are given here on this earth. We only get one shot at life, folks. Our our dreams matter. A life without dreams, I would say, has no vision, has no passion, and struggles to find purpose. God gives us dreams and aspirations. He gives us what I often describe as holy discontentment, something that is just stirring in our hearts, that just bothers us to the core, that we believe about our world needs to change. That's a dream, a holy discontentment that's been given to you by God, and God is calling us to act on our dreams. Martin Luther King Jr., you might have heard of him, he opened his famous speech with this simple line, I have a dream. Essentially calling people to imagine a world that was different. A world that could actually move from being a dream into a reality. Some people think that we shouldn't spend time dreaming, that dreaming is a waste of time, that we should live in reality and do what is responsible. Living your dreams, it's just for people who don't want to be responsible or who want to be lazy or who who have a, a, a misunderstanding of the way that the world functions. Here's the problem with that. History tells us different and scripture tells us something very, very different. If everyone played life safe and didn't live their dreams, nothing in our world would have changed for the better. People like Martin Luther King Jr. would have done nothing about their God-given holy discontent. We wouldn't have any innovation, good or bad, today. All of it started with a dream. I worry, folks. I really, I'm deeply concerned specifically about the Christian church and our lack of dreaming our lack of vision, our lack of direction. I worry that we just don't dream enough today. I actually think that you dream big dreams because this is how God speaks to you about what he wants you to accomplish in your one life here on earth. And God has a dream for us as well. Scott McKnight, a theologian that I referenced last week, a a Jesus scholar, says this. God has a plan for each of us. God has a plan for his church. What God has planned can be called the dream of God. And God made us to give our one life to that dream of God. Jesus called the dream the kingdom of God. Now, I did a whole kingdom of God series. You can go back and listen to that, and I'll reference a few things uh, here and there, but today I actually want to dig into some of the historicity, the history uh, that surrounds how the Jews actually would have heard this thing that Jesus proclaims. He calls it the good news. In Mark chapter 1, so we're early on in his gospel, starting at verse 15, Jesus announces this. 
He says, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus announced his dream, his dream of a kingdom here on earth that is God's kingdom. And he's calling us to follow him in that dream. Take a second and just step back or lean back in your chairs. Forget church. Forget Sunday morning service. Forget Christianity and defining that. Forget church history and the major mistakes that have happened because there's been plenty. And for one moment, just connect these three terms in your mind. Jesus and dream and one shot at this life. Jesus and dream and one shot at this life. What has Jesus called you to do to live in his kingdom dream? Now, the question that we have to ask and what we're going to spend some time exploring this morning is what does Jesus mean by kingdom? What is exactly his kingdom dream? I actually believe that Jesus was a kingdom, sorry, a dream awakener. That if you lack dreams, that when you truly press into a relationship with Jesus Christ, that he awakens your dreams. And he used the concept of the kingdom to begin to show us what it means to follow him. So following Jesus and this concept of kingdom that Jesus gives us are linked together in scripture. You can't understand one if you don't understand the other. Kingdom is a word that has been thrown around so much in our Christian culture that I fear that we've lost its revolutionary meaning. We hear kingdom of God and we often think internal that God's kingdom is in our hearts. It's something that is manifested in our personal relationship with Jesus, our private piety. Or that God's kingdom is not something that is possible right now. It's a future reality that we can look forward to if we're saved, but not for this life. For some of us, kingdom is separate from everyday life. We, we have church, and we kind of see God's kingdom expression in church, and, and it's one of our Christian activities, so well, it must be part of God's kingdom. And then we have everyday life, our work, our personal life, and we separate God's kingdom from our work kingdom or our everyday life activities. And so when we're doing church, when we're doing small groups, when we're doing Christian things, we're like, okay, that's the kingdom. But then when we step outside of those things and we got to do like real life, the kingdom gets kind of moved over here and then we go about living in the kingdom of the world. We see things as separate from God's kingdom as only Christian activities. Jesus taught us something that addresses this separation when he presents to us how we should learn to pray. Have you ever heard of the Lord's Prayer? He addresses this. He says, your kingdom come. This is what you should be praying. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
For God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. This is a kingdom dream, and it's an active dream that Jesus is calling us to follow right now. For Jesus, the word kingdom meant the dream for this world come true. But this wasn't just Jesus' dream. It was the dream of everyone in Israel at the time. If you know anything about the Old Testament, you see this dream saturated in the writings. And so perhaps it, it'll help us to understand just how radical the people Jesus was announcing this to would have heard what Jesus was saying. Read any of the prophets in the Old Testament and you'll catch a snippet of a bold, robust hope for what God would do someday. It's this hope that Jesus is announcing has come. So I need you to hear that. It's this hope that they had been hoping for, that they had been learning, that they had been hearing from the prophets about, that they knew that rested in the Exodus story. It was this hope of Jesus saying the kingdom is near, the kingdom is at hand. It's that hope that he is announcing has come. To the Jew, Jesus was not announcing something new. He was announcing something that they had hoped for. When Jesus used the word kingdom, he connected it to words now and arriving. Arrived, sorry. Now and arrived. To the Jew, this meant that Jesus was announcing that a whole story was coming to the concluding chapter, that history was now set to shift. When he announced the kingdom, they heard it differently than you and I hear it today. They heard it in the context of their whole story. Now, to look at scripture properly, you have to look at it as an overarching narrative, a story that's playing itself out. When you miss that story, we become pluckers and we pull things out and we start to, to quote texts that don't actually say what we're claiming they say. It has to fit in the overarching narrative, and the Jews had a deep understanding of what that was because of their historicity. The reign of God that the people had been waiting for has now arrived. That's what Jesus is saying. They didn't need to wait and dream about it any longer. What the prophets had talked about was becoming reality. God's kingdom reign has arrived. They would have heard this announcement in the context of their story, as I said, and seen it as a continuing chapter, the most important chapter in the overarching story. So when a first century Jew heard this announcement from Jesus, they would have thought three specific things. So just for a second, think to yourself, when Jesus says kingdom, kingdom of God, what is it that first comes to mind? And let's see if it is what would have came to mind to a Jew. There was three specific things that they would have heard when they heard the word kingdom. First, and this one might be a little obvious, there's got to be a king. If we're going to have a kingdom, we have to have a king, and not just a king, but a king who rules and has a will. So there has to be a king, a ruler, and in their case, it was Yahweh or God. 
He was their king. They tried other options. We can read about that uh, specifically in First and Second Samuel with Saul and David and, and the, the coming of the earthly king compared to the king who God had chosen. They tried all kinds of ways to fill kingship in their history. But there always had to be a king, and that king was the ruler over a nation. So when Jesus said the kingdom is near, they would have looked for, well, who then is the king of this new kingdom? And that king rules. And in the case of Jewish history, their king, God, had ruled by redeeming people. And so they connected kingship with redemption. They held the Exodus story you got to understand, generation after generation after generation, the Jews would tell the story of the Exodus. They're being freed from slavery in Egypt and, and being moved to the wilderness. The Exodus story was the hope that they held in their hearts. And so when they heard King, they thought of that story and it would give them hope Because now they're looking for, they equate king with redeemer. So now we have a new king, a new kingdom, which means we are going to be redeemed. They also saw a king as someone who governed. We don't really like that. We like to choose who governs. They didn't get to choose who governed. There was no elections. There was no process to go through. There's no democracy in scripture. And the people would submit to the governing king. This governing king would have a will. He would have a way that he was going to govern, a way of life that the king was calling his people to live. So the Jews would have been searching out what this new king expected. We see this in the Torah where God's will is expressed through the law. This is God's expectation to make you right with God, follow this sacrificial system, these laws. And then in the New Testament, we see this in Jesus' teaching. Now the second thing, so the first thing they saw was who's the king? The second is, is that a kingdom has to have people. You're not much of a king if you have nobody but yourself. Who are you lording over? Who are you leading in any way? You're not a king if you're all alone. Kingdoms always involve people. So to the Jew, those who were deemed, were going to be redeemed by the king, would be looking to submit to the will of that king. The third thing they looked for was land. A king must have a space to rule in. And in the Old Testament, land was a very literal thing. God gave them land, gave the Israelites land. And in the New Testament, land becomes a universal promise of a new world. So when Jesus was announcing the coming of the kingdom of God, the Jews would have automatically associated this announcement with the coming of of the Messiah. When you look at the Greek text and the word that's used for Messiah, it quite literally means king. When they declared someone as Messiah, they were saying, you are our king. And they were waiting for this kingship, this king, this 
kingdom. The Messiah coming brings the Jewish nation a redeeming king, a new exodus, and establishes God's people as a blessing to the nations. Just a side note, a blessing to the nations is actually our mission calling before the Great Commission. The gospel actually begins, I would argue, in Genesis chapter 3 and continues through the redemptive story. It doesn't begin in the book of Acts. It doesn't begin with Jesus. It started with the fall and then the calling of Abraham and the call of Abraham to be a blessing to the nations. Now, I've preached on this, and so you can look back on that, but always ask yourself, am I being a blessing? Because that is what the kingdom of God is called to be. Jesus associates all of these things. He sees kingdom the same way that the Jews would have seen kingdom. But he flips their meaning upside down. The kingdom, of course, meant all of these things to Jesus. There was a new king, the Messiah. There was people, Israel, and then later moving into the church. And there was land. But to Jesus, as we see in the gospel narrative and the book of Acts, the kingdom was bigger than the Jews could have ever imagined. Scott McKnight says this. He says, his kingdom vision is so big, we are called to give our entire lives to it. You see that connection that has to happen between our understanding of the gospel and following Jesus and connecting it to this announcement of the kingdom of God? He says, this vision is so big, it swallows up our dreams. Our dreams become part of Jesus' kingdom dream. But it, it plays out very differently than many expected. The kingdom vision that Jesus had involved a suffering servant as the king. Now, why is that flipping things upside down? Because they expected a warrior king who would conquer all the nations. But instead of a warrior king, they got a suffering servant as their king. Redemption through the king's sacrificial death on a cross. Peace and righteousness being offered through the king's resurrecting power. Folks, peace and righteousness, holiness, righteousness is only attained through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. If you think you attain it any other way, you have ripped the cross out of your theology. Peace and righteousness are offered through the king's resurrecting power and a people who were completely dedicated to following their king's will. Listen to how the apostle Paul says this about the nature of the kingdom dream. Now, we, I need to give you a little tiny bit of context of what's happening in this passage in Romans 14. The, the church in Rome, at one point in its early inception, involved both Jews and Gentiles. But then what happened was a king came along, one of the emperors came along and, and sent the Jews out of Rome. And so these Jews had to leave the Christian church, 
It wasn't called that at that time. But they had to leave meeting with these other Gentiles. And so now the Roman church purely had Roman Gentiles as the people shaping their church. The Jews were exiled. They were sent out of town. And several years later, I think it was Nero that allowed them back into Rome. And so they go to rejoin with the Gentile believers. Now you can imagine the mess that the Jews felt they walked into because the Gentiles had just shaped what this church was going to look like and the Jews had no say in what that shaping was. And so they showed up and went, ah, like what did you do to our church? You're eating meat that was used for sacrifices and so it's unclean and so you can't eat that meat and the Gentiles are like, oh, the meat tastes fine. What's the problem? And so Paul has to insert it. This is like, you got to understand, this was like hymns versus choruses kind of stuff. <laughs> they were like walking in going, what have you done to our church? It's like sacrilegious what you're doing. And Paul has to navigate this. And what essentially Paul says to them is this, you're both right and you're both wrong. So to the Gentile, that meat isn't unclean, and to the Jew it is, and we will respect that with one another. One is a more mature view than the other, and ironically, it's the Gentiles' view. Or is it the Jews? You can make up your mind. It's in that context that Paul says this statement that sets the stage for what the kingdom of God actually looks like. So picture them arguing about stuff that doesn't actually matter. I know that never happens in the church. <laughs> Paul says this. For the, so in that context of everything I just told you, he says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1, he says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us in the, into the kingdom of the son he loves. I want you to notice the contrast here. The dominion of darkness, the kingdom of the world, and the kingdom of light is the kingdom of the son whom he loves. So when we're functioning in the kingdom of the world, we're actually functioning, folks, in the darkness, not in the light. And he says that this kingdom, the, the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the kingdom represents the reality of the king's people experiencing peace, joy in the spirit, forgiveness, and redemption. These are the markers of Jesus' kingdom vision. In Jesus' kingdom, the land is the entire world, and the people are the church. The church representing the ethos of this kingdom dream. The people who live the kingdom dream, that's the church. By kingdom, Jesus means God's dream society on earth spreading out from the land of Israel to encompass the whole world. 
When we talk about the kingdom of God, Jesus was thinking of concrete realities on earth. The church being the embodiment of the Jesus dream. And he's thinking of you and I living together in community, living our God-given dreams, our holy discontents. The kingdom Jesus spoke of, listen very carefully, is God's will being lived out by his church here on earth. Both right now and as we prepare for his future reign. Now here's where the confusion starts to happen when we talk about kingdom. There's a past and a present and a future aspect to the kingdom of God. We tend to focus either on the past of it or the future of it, but we tend to neglect the right now presence. The future piece in Revelation chapter 11, it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And that is talking about the, the, the death of sin forever. He's conquered death, but sin and death still exist in our world. And one day in the future kingdom, sin will be wiped off of the earth and the new heavens and earth, the new Jerusalem will become our reality. So there is that connection. But it's interesting though that many in the church focus on this future kingdom as their hope, but Jesus spoke mostly of the coming of the current reality, not the future. The kingdom of God here on earth right now is what Jesus talks about. The church being God's people living before God with others in a way that embodies the will of God in a new kind of society. The kingdom dream of Jesus looks very different from the kingdom of this world. The kingdom that Jesus presents is an interconnected society noted for, by caring for others, shaped by justice, empowered by love and peacemaking and the flowing and flowing with wisdom, all undergirded and empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. So the announcement of the kingdom was the beginning of a redemptive plan for all of humanity. Now, I would actually say that did begin in Genesis 3, but this is sort of a a peak in the bridge, so to speak. It's the beginning of a dream that makes all of our dreams possible. Those who follow Jesus are called to embody this kingdom dream. So notice the connection between following and the kingdom. We're to embody this kingdom way of life. They're called to follow Jesus to live lives that call for justice, peace, and love. Kingdom people, the way that I summarize this, is that kingdom people are called to live redemptively at all times. Our dreams, now, our dreams when not centered on self. You see, we can have self-centered dreams, dreams that are self-serving, aspirations that are about self, that's not the kind of dreams that we are talking about here. Self-centered dreams are from the kingdom of the world, but when God gives you a holy discontent that embodies the qualities of the king, then you're called 
to live that dream. So, I want to add to our definition and then give some concluding thoughts before I let you go eat. How many people are having turkey dinner today? Two. Yeah, a few of us are. I get two, one today, one tomorrow, and then uh, I get to recoup for the rest of the week. A Christian is someone who is following Jesus by devoting his or her life to the kingdom vision of Jesus. A Christian is someone who is following Jesus by devoting his or her life to the kingdom vision of Jesus. Now, we're going to keep building on this. We're not done yet, but we're laying a foundation of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And in order to follow Jesus, you have to devote your entire self, your whole self, to living the kingdom vision that Jesus presents. So what is the kingdom vision? Very simple. For God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're called by Jesus to follow him by devoting our lives to living in his kingdom reality, showing the world this kingdom dream and living as a community of believers who embody this kingdom ethic. Our dreams are meant to be lived, not ignored. We're called to be radical in the way that we love. We're called to love unconditionally. This kind of kingdom life can't be separated from other aspects of our lives. You can't say, well, I'm going to live in God's kingdom when I'm doing Christian things, but then I'm not going to live in God's kingdom when I'm at work. You ever had that like awkward moment where you're like, hey, I only ever see you at church. Why am I seeing you like at work? You know, or, or you have like your work self and your Christian self and maybe they're different. This is impossible when you're following Jesus. It's not possible to have that disposition where we separate things. Everything is embodied together and we are living our whole lives, dedicating our whole self to following King Jesus. And the King Jesus phrase, you're going to hear from me over and over and over again because I want you to understand that he is our king. He trumps our prime ministers. He trumps all authority that we have here on earth. He is our king. Not just someone we occasionally choose to follow when we like what he does for us. Living our lives for King Jesus means we've devoted everything to our King. And he's called us to a radically different perspective on life. A kingdom perspective. You're going to hear that as I talk through this series. A kingdom dream of a society that embodies the nature of Christ, our King. The worship team can join me up here. Followers of Jesus live this dream in absolutely everything that they do. So I want you to ask yourself a few questions today as we go back into closing with a song. Am I living this kingdom dream? Am I responding to the holy discontent that Jesus gives me? Or am I brushing it aside to say that doesn't make sense 
in, in the structure of our world. I should probably just go get a job, get married, have kids, buy a house, pay the mortgage off, then retire and be depressed. Or is there kingdom purpose to absolutely everything you do? Does everything you do, every decision you make, every action you take, does it embody the nature of the king? Or do we separate life? Because to follow Jesus, we can't pick and choose when that happens. It isn't just a trigger that happens when we walk into the church. It's an entire life that you've devoted yourself to.